I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about one of the biggest bands of the 80s, The Police. They burned hot and fast for just a few years before coming to an abrupt and weirdly civil end in 1984. Uh, Given the epic and sometimes physical fights in the studio and on the road, it's pretty amazing how friendly they've all remained over the years. It is amazing because when I think about the police, I usually just think about them hating each other, (laughs) especially Sting and Stuart Copeland, the two biggest personalities in the band. And then you have Andy Summers in the middle, whose greatest talent was knowing when to stay out of the way of the other guys in the band. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the three members of the police came from wildly different backgrounds, and they had wildly different personalities. And this would account for the band's distinctive sound, and also for the fact that the band was volatile as hell pretty much from the start. And I think it's important to note that these were not like school friends coming together. These were all fairly established players, especially Andy Summers, who was already in like his mid-30s and a veteran of like the mid-60s blues beat scene. So they formed not out of friendship, but out of a shared talent and ambition— and when these ambitions started to diversify, that's when the problems began. And this happened pretty much immediately. And in retrospect, the police were born to implode. I think Sting later said, We didn't have a great deal in common. We were of different generations, in Andy's case, and welded together by a flag of convenience. And Stuart Copeland was even more blunt. He said, We were attached at the wallet. <laughs> And yet when these three guys came together, they really did form, I think, a unique band in rock history. I mean, they were a trio, but they weren't really a power trio per se. I mean, usually in rock trios, the guitarist is the leader. But in the the police, the rhythm section took the lead while the guitarist provided musical shading. And that reflected the pecking order of egos in the band. You know, Sting and Stuart Copeland, they demanded a lot of sonic real estate, while Andy Summers was able to accommodate that. 
And somehow you put all these different elements together and it worked and they became just an incredibly successful pop rock band. So I'm excited to explore how this happened. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. In the beginning, it was Stuart Copeland's band. I cannot stress that enough. That's the theme we're going to come back to over and over again in this episode. He was the worldly son of a CIA agent, and he lived all throughout the Middle East before settling in London in the mid-70s, where he was drumming in a cult favorite prog rock group called Curved Air. One of the great prog rock names right there, Curved Air. I love that. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. I mean, I keep thinking of like the Grateful Dead, like heavy air thing. I, I can't figure it out. But he played with them for about two years before punk started to dominate the British music scene. And he was intrigued by this, you know, unbridled passion and vitality of the genre, which was so at odds with his really schooled musical background. And he also was looking to achieve some degree of musical success, which he wasn't getting through Curved Air. So he decided to form what he called a guerrilla band, which was like a stripped down side project to play this rough and ready rock and roll. And he had an idea of who he wanted for a singer. Yes, and that's where Sting enters the picture. But before we talk about Sting, I just want to say quickly, like, I love Stuart Copeland. I love him as a drummer. I love his interviews. He has this, like, incredible energy to him where yeah. I think he's a really funny guy, but there's, like, always this, like, weirdly, like, angry edge to him. I think especially when he's talking about Sting. That it's kind of scary, yeah. It is. It's very magnetic and great, and it definitely powers his drumming because... His drumming is also very energetic and polyrhythmic and uh, ended up being a huge, I think, element of the police sound. But of course, as you said, this was Stuart Copeland's band at the beginning, but it wasn't going to remain his band for very long because before long he meets this guy named Gordon Sumner who insists on calling himself Sting for some reason. It was his sweater. He had a sweater that looked like a bee. And all like I guess his school friends would call him Sting because he looked like a bee and it just stuck. Isn't it funny, though, that like he looked at that as an endearing nickname and not like uh, something to live down or be like, all right, enough with the sting. I guess he just hated the name Gordon. Uh, that seems to be the only explanation for that. At the time, you know, it was weird that Sting ended up being the singer in a new wave band because he really had no interest in rock music at all. He was playing in a band called, called Last Exit, which was this jazzy group, very out of step with what was going on in music at the time. But Stuart Copeland ends up seeing this band. He doesn't really like the band's music, but he feels that Sting has something on stage. He has a presence to him. Obviously, he was a very good-looking guy. He has a good voice. And there's something about Sting that just makes Stuart Copeland feel that this is the guy to be the singer in his new punk rock band. So he ends up bringing Sting into the fold. And then they also have this punk rock guitar player named Henry Padovani, who I guess is the Pete Best of the police. <laughs> he ends up not being a part of their history for a very long time. He's going to get booted here shortly. But he was really the only, I guess, legitimate like punk musician in the police because, you know, Sting really had no connection to that kind of music. And Stuart Copeland, I mean, he could play circles around the average punk drummer. Yeah, I mean, they were they started off as a fake punk band. And it, again, it was very much Stewart's fake punk band. Their early songs were these mile-a-minute punk screeds that, that Stewart had written. And he wrote the band's first single, a song called Fallout. And he founded his own label called Illegal to release it in 1977. And the police were really a Copeland family affair. His older brother Miles managed the band, and his brother Ian was the booking agent. So again, very much this was Stewart's thing. And in the spring of 1977, Sting and Stewart were booked for a side gig backing this guy Mick Howlett for a project called Stronium 90. 
and they played a few gigs in France and recorded some demos with this guy, which were released later after the police blew up. And the other member of this project was Andy Summers, who, as I said earlier, was a longtime London music veteran. He was a decade older than the others, and he, he backed people like Eric Burden and Kevin Ayers of The Soft Machine. And he came up through the London mod scene with people like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. So he was a, a different generation, and he clearly outranked Sting and Stewart. But Andy loved working with these young guys. He really thought they had something special, and he more or less invited himself into the police, which is funny because Stewart wasn't really all that keen on it, and he tried to talk him out of it. He was saying, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a big session star. We're just these, there's no money in what we do. Like, why would you want to join us? Uh, but Andy ends, ends up getting his way, and he joins. And his first role in the band is to remove uh, Henry, the only true punk uh, guy in the band, Henry the guitarist. And it's great. If you watch Henry in interviews, it's really hilarious. He's this laid-back Corsican guy who seems to really not give a shit about anything. He's really kind of my favorite member of the story. Yeah, like he really had no regret about no. you know being kicked out of this band that ended up being, again, just hugely successful. I, I saw an interview where he was like, I had no idea that Sting was going to one day write Every Breath You Take. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I, if you don't want me in the band, that's fine. I think at the time, even, he felt relieved because he was this legitimate punk. And I think his friends that were in the punk scene, they looked at the police as a joke. Yeah. You know, like they weren't a real punk band. So I think in the short run, especially, he felt like, well, it's probably not very cool to be playing in this band. It is crazy when you look at the police in the early days, just like on paper, you know, you have this prog rock drummer you have a jazz bow bass player, and you have this like guitar player who I'm sorry, but he was old as hell at yeah. this time. <laughs> like he was like, you know, I think you said mid thirties. Like he was like late thirties, really. I mean, he was like, yeah, yeah. like on the verge of turning forty almost by the time he joined the Police. Uh, you know, he was like you know Paul McCartney's generation. You know, like he wasn't like the Johnny Rotten uh, generation. But Andy Summers really ends up being a crucial, I think, component of this band because. He's someone that I think just in terms of his demeanor, as I was saying before, I think he was very adaptable as a guitar player. He didn't have the ego of a lot of guitar players where, you know, it'd be about his guitar riffs or his guitar solos. He really, I think, became like a textualist in The Police, that he could add shadings to this very busy rhythm section that was in that band. The other crucial thing about Andy Summers, again, that you know, because he wasn't a punk guitarist, it really freed Sting up as a songwriter, to start writing more sophisticated kinds of songs. Uh, you know, you mentioned Fallout being a Stuart Copeland composition. You know, that's a very, you know, by-the-numbers type punk song. But now that you have Andy Summers in the band, they had the ability to write songs that, like, sounded superficially like punk, but if you actually, like, dug into the musical guts of what they were doing... They were actually using like pretty complicated chords and different time signatures. And it really added an element, I think, to those songs that ultimately made them more pop friendly. You know, they could have the aggression and the energy of punk, but have something extra that would appeal to people that would never listen to a punk record. Yeah, I think Stuart Copeland later said in an interview, you know, we were like a punk band because we played four chords in our songs, but there were four very complicated chords. And that was the difference. Yeah, it was it was the fact that like, you know, most punk bands they only knew four chords whereas the police knew like 40 chords and they could pick the four right chords to put in, you know, or they wouldn't always be the same four chords. And it was just like a much wider template to draw from that I think ended up benefiting the police once new wave started to burn out a little bit. Yeah, and as you said earlier, the addition of Andy Summers to the band really allowed Sting to develop the kind of songs that he wanted to write because he wasn't really interested in writing punk songs at all. So the band 
didn't really seem like it was something that really interested him much. But now that he was able to have this wider palette to explore, he was writing stuff like in his earlier jazz band, Last Exit. And that kind of is when he starts to flourish as a songwriter. And it's also when Stewart realizes that he's not the strongest songwriter in the band anymore. I think he even said years later, the minute Andy joined, it stopped being, you know, strictly my endeavor anymore. I mean, he was not Andy is 10 years older than he is. He's not somebody's a session professional. He's not somebody that's going to take a back seat to Stuart. So he knew at this point it was a band of equals. It was a band of three producers, as they would later say. And it wasn't just his project anymore. And probably one of the, the best early examples of this strange blend of all their different musical backgrounds is Roxanne, their breakthrough song. Because Sting wrote it in almost like a bossa nova style, almost like a, like a Astro Gilberto kind of song. Because he knew Andy could handle that sort of thing, but bossa nova in the punk scene would have obviously been suicide. So Stewart put this reggae-ish backbeat to it, and that's really where you get the band's unique sound, this blend of diverse influences where you get punk, new wave, jazz, reggae, all coming together. And you compare Roxanne with Fallout, it sounds like two totally different bands, you know? I mean, it's just, you, you can't compare. And... Roxanne would become their breakthrough hit, but it it was a slow burn. I think it took about a year for it to really climb the charts. And during this period, uh, when they were when the song was out, but it really wasn't doing anything, the police went to America and played small clubs. I think their first American gig was at CBGB's. And uh, and by the time they returned to England, they were stars effectively. This was uh, their Roxanne was released in 1979 and became a huge smash. Uh, they released their debut album. I can never pronounce any of these albums. Outlandos de Moor. I, I think that's right. In, uh, in November 1978, which had incredible songs. Can't Stand Losing You, Next to You, So Lonely, Born in the 50s. And they set out on this huge, epic global tour after that. And that was pretty much instant fame from that point on. Yeah, it seems almost like an opposite Jimi Hendrix uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Like, where, you know, like Jimi Hendrix had to go to England to become famous, and then he came to America, and he was almost known as like this British phenomenon, and that's how he caught on in America. And with the police, it was the opposite, where, as you said, they put out Roxanne. It's not really a hit. They come to America, and they play a three-week tour that is like a sensation, and they really start to take off in the States, and then they go back to England and they're known as this American phenomenon. And that's where they really start to hit it big in England. And even though it took a while for Roxanne to catch on, it seems like after that, the police really were a rocket ship. I mean, if you look at their career from like 78 to 84, they're putting out an album pretty much every year. They're, you know, having hit singles. They're going on these like lengthy tours where not only are they playing, you know, Europe and the United States, but they are a true international band playing markets that most rock bands would never play, you know, whether it's like Hong Kong or Thailand or you know, all over the world. And you really see that like Sting is becoming like a pretty huge star. Like he's really catching on. He's obviously the front man of the band. He's this really good looking guy. He has an interest in acting. He ends up appearing in the 1979 film Quadrophenia, which is the beginning of Sting being looked at as a separate entity from the police, even though his appearance in that film, obviously, you know, I think benefited uh, the band uh, in their celebrity. But there starts to be this theme in the interviews, like where people are asking about, you know, are the other two guys, are they feeling bad about all the attention that Sting is getting? You know, is this going to undermine the solidarity of the band? And of course, when the media starts asking questions like this, it just implants the idea in the mind of the band. This becomes an issue that they can't avoid. And, you know, I'm just thinking of like the No Doubt video, Don't Speak, 
you know, like <laughs> where, you know, instead of Gwen Stefani being the attractive blonde in the band, it's, it's Sting is the uh, attractive blonde in the band. And it, it really seems like, you know, that becomes a major, uh, you know, theme in the police's career. It's certainly a theme in uh, the two documentaries about the police, which, by the way, a quick sidebar, you know, there's two documentaries about the police and they're both spearheaded. Like one is spearheaded by Andy Summers and the other one is uh, spearheaded by Stuart Copeland. And I can't recall another instance of that in rock history, like where like members of the band are making separate documentaries about the band, like from their perspective. And it's not the most famous guy in the band. Right. Like, like there's no sting documentary about the police, but you know, there's, there's can't stand losing you uh, is the Andy Summers documentary and uh, I'm trying to remember the Stuart Copeland one. The Stuart Copeland one is like not very good. Like, have, no, have you seen no. both of those? Yes. Yeah. I mean, Kansas City Music is, is incredible. I mean, it's got, uh, but th- there is that weird scene when he goes to like his photo gallery show. Yes. Yeah. There's, yeah, because there's this thing where uh, Andy Summers just started taking photos uh, when they were on tour. And uh, he ended up being like, I think, a, like a relatively renowned photographer. And, they have this photo show. This is like years after the police uh, broke up. And like, there's this section of the show where it's just like photos of like naked groupies and presumably like Andy Summers hotel room. And like Andy Summers wife is there. And like, she poses next to like this shot of like a woman's like pubic hair. Like, I think it has like a piece of fruit on it or something. I can't remember exactly (laughs) what it is, but I was like, isn't this kind of weird? Like, I just feel like if I was a rock star, I would keep the groupie photos in, like, a separate file on my laptop, you know? <laughs> keep that away from the missus. I feel just, like, out of respect for the wife. It, it just seems weird to me. I just want to say quick, the uh, Stuart Copeland movie is called Everyone Stares. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. But uh, anyway, that's just a sidebar on that. I just think it's interesting that both of those guys felt the need to make a documentary. It just speaks to how the power struggles in this band continued well after they broke up. Like they still had to have the last word, you know, in these movies. And there's a great clip in the Andy Summers documentary where reporters asking Sting about writing more songs than the others. And you see him visibly cringe. Like he, he clearly felt the press was trying to drive a wedge between him and the rest of the band. And obviously there was an element of truth to this, but it was also a case of reporters knowing that stories about a band in turmoil sell a lot more than, you know, a happy, peaceful band. So there's obviously enough tension in the band to go around, but it's weird how early the whole, like, when are you going to go solo conversation was had in the press? Like, it seemed to be there from the very beginning, which is, I think, is strange, very premature. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a perception among the press that somehow Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers were, like, the supporting musicians for Sting. And I don't think that that's a fair uh, impression to have of this band. I think the police at their best to me, were a real band. And, I, you know, my favorite record by them is Zenyata Mundata, which comes out in 1980. And this is a record that really, I think, was the turning point for them becoming, you know, a major rock band in the world. You know, I mean, the first two records had a lot of hits on them. You know, like Regatta de Blanc comes out in uh, 1979 that has, like, Message in a Bottle on there, The Bed's Too Big Without You, Bring on the Night. Uh, all these classic songs from the police. But Zenyatta Mandata is the one, I think, where people really felt like, oh yeah, this this is like the biggest band in the world. And you you knew that they were getting big because they recorded that album in Holland because they were tax exiles at that point. <laughs> that's like, when you know. That's Yeah, like when the British rock band reaches the tax exile 
moment in their career, it's like, okay, you're big. You've, you've achieved a level of stardom uh, that you know, this is like rarefied air. And, you know, they were dealing with all the usual pressures, of course, working on that record. I think Sting later said that he felt that the whole world was waiting for this record, that there was like this machinery in place that was waiting for that album to come out and to sort of take it away from them and, and take it out of the marketplace and, and kind of transform it into something that really went beyond what this band was in the early days of their career. Um, and of course, this record ended up spawning very famous songs. Don't Stand So Close to Me is the first track. Da do 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 da 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 is another big hit. Those are both Sting songs, of course. But when I think about that record, I really think of it as an album showcasing the instrumental chemistry of that band, the interplay of the bass, drums, and guitar. And that's what I love about it. Like, there's an element to it that to me sounds like a little jammy, like that they were working those songs out in the studio. And it was about spotlighting what each guy brought to the band. And it just seems like on that record, things just seem perfectly calibrated in a way that they weren't going to be on the albums after that. Yeah, I mean, instrumentally, watching them and listening to their interplay is incredible. And it's even more amazing when you realize, looking back on it, that this was around the time when Sting really began to assert himself more in the studio. And this was no longer a democracy. Sting was very clearly the dominant songwriter at that point. And when he would bring his songs in, he had a very clear idea in his mind of, of how he wanted them to sound. And it was really stifling to, to Stuart and Andy. Uh, I think Stuart would later say he was very clever in his vision, but for Sting, there's only one artistic truth. All his creative juices tell him this, but the other two mortals in the room also had their musical truths. So it became really this power struggle of, will you let me support you? Will you let me actually contribute? It's like, you know, the later Beatles sessions with Paul McCartney, who comes in with a, with a fully fleshed out song, and he just wants the guy, other guys to be sidemen. And I think that that was something that was happening with Sting and the Police here. And it really, they felt smothered. I, Stuart, always good with the quotes, uh, said in years later, he said that being in police was like wearing a Prada suit made out of barbed wire. <laughs> Which I'm not sure what that means exactly, but it's, but it's a, a very colorful quote and I love it. I mean, I think generally speaking, when you look at the police records, I, I feel like Sting, you know, he was writing the hits. He was writing, I think, the most accessible pop songs on the, on those records. And it makes sense that his records became the most famous. But I actually appreciate the Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland songs because I think generally speaking, they're more eccentric. They're more experimental. They're, they're a little like more art rock and even more prog rock. And a great example of that is this song called Behind My Camel, which ended up being a pretty controversial track within the band from Zenyatta Mundata. This is an Andy Summer song. And I, I love this song. It reminds me of like a Brian Eno track like mm. from the mid-70s. Like you could imagine that song being on Another Green World or Before and After Science. But for whatever reason, Sting hated Behind My Camel. He told the story later on about how he actually like took the master of that song and buried it in the garden, <laughs> like, <laughs> like behind the studio or whatever, uh, to like prevent it from ending up on the record. But then Andy Summers, I guess, like got a shovel, dug it back, up. literally dug it back up, and they got, he got it on the record. And that song actually ended up winning a Grammy later on, I think, for like best instrumental rock performance. And I'm glad he did. I mean, that is a song that I think brings something unique to Zenyatta Mandata. It ensures that it's not just a collection of Sting pop songs, but there's maybe something a little stranger. And that's something that I think Police Records needed. And I think the records after this don't quite have that collaborative element as much, and they suffer from it, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that 
that's really when Sting begins to take over in those later records. But, you know, bearing a tape in, in the garden is pretty extreme. And this is really the era when the fights, it, it wasn't just sniping. Sting would later admit that we didn't like each other very much at this point. There were three big egos pulling in different directions. I started to be very ruthless and very cruel in order to get the songs done. And Sting's temper during this period is somewhat legendary. Stewart's alluded to physical confrontations in many interviews over the years. And uh, uh, Andy has described an incident when Sting once blew up at him, just apparently just letting loose with just a a string of of florid insults that just left everyone in the room white-faced in shock, he said. And uh, Stewart apparently used to have uh, a message, uh, Sting is a C-word written on his drum skins, so he'd hit them all the harder. (laughs) And this is, this is barely after three years into the band. You know, it was very quickly that they reached the stage of physical altercations and burying tapes in the garden. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am... The Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So that brings us to the next police record, which is Ghost in the Machine. And it seems like one of the few things that all three members of the police agree on is that this is where things really started to turn toxic in the band. And again, it has to do with Sting really asserting his control. This idea that not only is he going to be the main songwriter, not only is he going to discourage the other guys from writing, but this is the beginning of him actually starting to show up with like more or less completed demos. So he has an idea of how he wants the song to sound, and it's really limiting like the remaining creativity that the other guys have. I think especially Stuart Copeland was feeling that you know he didn't want to play like a drum machine, you know, or like the very regimented beats that you might have on a demo. He's a very expressive drummer. He wanted to bring his expression to the songs, but uh, it wasn't something that Sting was going to allow. And I think Sting, you know. To, uh, to his credit, I mean, I think to some degree you could say that he earned the right to take control just because of all the hits that he was writing. And that continued on Ghost in the Machine. I mean, this is a record that has every little thing she does is magic and spirits in the material world and, you know, songs that are still played on classic rock radio all the time. And you can hear them starting to move away from that, I guess, white reggae sound of like the first three records that more sort of, you know, again, funky music that's about the interplay of the musicians. It's really starting to move more toward, I think, what Sting's solo career is going to be, you know, which is more of like a middle-of-the-road type pop sound that is very lush and rich and has great melodies, but is less about, you know, an energetic rock band type vibe. Yeah, I always thought Ghost in the Machine was, you know, to use my favorite Spinal Tap reference of all time. This was their jazz odyssey album. <laughs> this was the, their, like, kitchen sink album where they weren't afraid to get weird and try to expand their sonic palette, which, again, a band trying to expand their sonic palette is right up there with recording abroad for tax reasons in terms of, like, red flags for where their band's at in the career. It's, it, that's rarely a good thing. Usually, usually trouble, interpersonal trouble follows after that. But yeah, this album was layered with just really dense multi-tracked vocals and synthesizer keyboards and horn riffs. Sting was very adamant on this album that he was, this is his quote, after our first three albums, we wanted to go so far away from the sound we already created. I was determined to play some saxophone. Oh, man. I have that, that bolded and underlined in my notes. I was that, determined to play some saxophone. That's like the last thing you want to hear your singer say. Yes. That, that's when you you must feel like, if you're the drummer in that band, you must just feel like, I wish there was an ejector seat on my drum kit. <laughs> I could just shoot out of this studio, man, because that you don't want to hear your, your singer say, it's time to play some saxophone, even though I don't really play saxophone. <laughs> I don't know how to play, yeah. I, and this this whole new approach really didn't sell out the other members of the band. I mean, Andy Summers was really open about his hatred of synths and the whole non-police sound. And in later years, he'd say, I was getting disappointed with the musical direction around the time of Ghost in the Machine. With the horns and the synth coming in, the fantastic raw trio feel, all the really creative and dynamic stuff was being lost. And we ended up being a backing singer doing his pop songs. Yeah, you really see Sting's ego come into play. Although, in fairness to Sting... The other two guys had pretty big egos, too. And, like, in the case of Ghost in the Machine, I just think about the story for the Andy Summers song, Omega Man, which is, like, a pretty good song. It's a good deep cut from that record. But apparently there was a time where I think A&M Records had earmarked that song as being a potential first single from Ghost in the Machine. And Sting put his foot down immediately and said, there's no way Omega Man is going to be the first single. And, of course, you know, there's the usual ego thing there where I'm sure Sting felt like, oh, it should be one of my songs. That's a single. But this is a record that had every little thing she does is magic right. on it. 
and Spirits in the Material World. Like, how can you not put out one of those songs as the first single? I mean, Omega Man, again, it's a it's a fine deep cut. But, like, I, I feel like when you listen to Ghost in the Machine, like, those two songs, like, you know, the, those two big hits, they jump out. Because not only are they famous, but, like, I think they're clearly the best songs on the record. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it gets back to, to Sting being like Paul McCartney. He was very rarely wrong in his ear for what would do well and what made a hit. Maybe he could have been more sensitive about it or whatever, but yeah, Sting's sense for what worked was almost always dead on at this period too. So yeah, I mean, it, it seems strange that the A&M executives would look at Omega Man as the lead single when those other Sting classics were right there alongside it. But supposedly that's how it went down. Um, there's a lot of darkness on the album, specifically the album ends with a track called Darkness, and it, it's it's bleak. There's references to violence in Northern Ireland and Invisible Sun and skinheads and Nazis and Rehumanize Yourself. And it, it's just, it, it, it's a dark album. And Sting would say that he wanted to create the impression of something struggling to the surface with this music, something hidden in the recesses of the mind, something from our dark subconscious waiting to be seen. And uh, that was kind of where he was at in his life because the success of the band was disastrous for all three members in their personal lives. I mean, all their marriages were breaking down and they kind of saw themselves on this road that they didn't really know how to get out of because this was who they were now. They saw that the only way to sort of make a living at this point was to make records. And they, I think Sting would later say, that, then it hit us that this is how we're going to have to make our living for the rest of our careers. I started looking for a way out, Sting said, around this era. Yeah, you, you really see the police, they're trapped now in a system where, on one hand, the way that they're making records is clearly, like, not good for bad morale. You know, it's really eating away at any kind of unity that they might have once had. And yet, on the same token, it's incredibly successful. Like, they're making records that people really like. And that culminates with their 1983 album and swan song, Synchronicity. And it's fascinating to me because, like, they had this really bad experience making Ghosts in the Machine. But then when it comes to doing Synchronicity, they go back to the same studio. It's Air Studio in the Caribbean, George Martin's uh, studio. Like, in luxurious uh, surroundings, it's a beautiful place. But, like, you just feel like, why did they go back there after so much negativity? And not only did they not really learn any lessons from Ghosts in the Machine in terms of like how to, you know, maybe be a little bit better interpersonally, it's just like, it seems like things got exacerbated. Like they're in the studio and like the air conditioning isn't working. So it's like literally like a hot house in the studio that they're having to work on. So that's making them miserable. And then the, the way that they're recording, it's like really getting far away from, again, the group interplay that they had on albums like Zinyata Mandata. Like, they're literally recording in three different rooms. I think, like, Sting was in the control room. Stuart Copeland was, like, in a room upstairs, I think. And then Andy Summers was the only person in the actual studio. So, like, they're laying down tracks. And, like, they're literally separated. Like, they're not They literally really, can't uh, communicate. Yeah, like, they're not a band at all. And it's just feeding this negativity that had already existed in Ghost in the Machine. And it's just worse now. And, like, Stuart Copeland said, basically, like, we hated each other's guts at this point but meanwhile you have sting coming up with like songs that are going to be even more popular than anything he's like written for the police before so while they're at a personal like rock bottom they're about to hit like their highest peak professionally right this is the album that has every breath you take and it's amazing to think that a lot of the songs on the record that sting would bring in the band wouldn't hear until he brought them into the studio the day that they were due to be recorded and uh and this song was 
one that, you know, obviously probably their, their defining song, I'd say, but the one that really ripped the band apart because Sting, again, had a very specific idea of how he wanted it to sound. In this case, he wanted Stuart Copeland to play a very simple, steady, straight-ahead beat. And for Stuart, it was like, well, okay, you're writing all the hits, fine, but at least let me do my thing and be me and contribute in the last way that I can. And Sting dictating the terms on that was completely intolerable to Stuart. Yeah, and again, it's one of those situations where I'm sympathetic to Stuart Copeland because I'm sure Sting was totally obnoxious <laughs> this time, you know, like being very dictatorial and and just being Sting. I mean, Sting seems like kind of a difficult person in a lot of ways, but this is Every Breath You Take. This is like one of the most famous pop songs of like the last 40 years. And having Stuart Copeland do like awesome drum fills on that song, it's not going to serve the track. Like it didn't need Stuart Copeland to assert himself. The song itself was so strong that Sting was right to just tell him to lay back, you know, serve the song. Don't just serve your own artistic impulses or or your own ego by, you know, showing off with fancy drums. I, I think the bigger problem with synchronicity and Sting himself highlighted this is that it's essentially a solo record for Sting, that he's now writing from a very personal point of view. And I think, you know, again, he's starting to write lyrics that are more like what his solo career is going to be like than with the police. Like, if you look at like early police videos, they're basically all the same. It's like those three guys just dancing around, acting like idiots, you know? They're very happy. It's very up, you know? It's like, like I was watching like the videos for like Don't Stand So Close to Me and uh, Every Little Thing She Does is Magic. And like, it's it's infectious. There's like a boy band element almost to the police. Like these three blonde guys, they're all cute. They're all wearing like short shorts. They're pretty hunky and they're just having a good time. And then you get to like synchronicity and it's like very, you know, sort of ponderous songs, like all these Carl Jung references on that record. <laughs> and, you know, songs like King of Pain and like Wrapped Around Your Finger and like Murder by Numbers. Like there's not a lot of laughs on that record. And it seemed like, you know, that element of fun had really been drained out of, out of the police by this point. And that was a huge sticking point for, for Stuart and Sting also, because they, they would say that they approached music from completely opposite directions. And for Sting, music was a, a painkiller, a way to sort of escape from this world that he saw as being really evil and harsh and grim. And Stuart would say, for me, music's a celebration. Like, let's light up the room and have some fun. And you see sort of the light and darkness on synchronicity. I mean, even down to the fact that the album was, was sort of split in half with all the uptempo songs on one side and the, the sort of dark, slower ones on another. But yeah, as you said, every breath you take, when you listen to the lyrics, it's, it's weird that a lot of, I was a wedding DJ for years in college, and I can't tell you how many times I played that song as like a first dance. And it's a weird first dance because it's like, as Sting said, it's a really sinister song. It's like all about like surveillance and stalking, essentially. And then King of Pain, like you said, and Wrapped Around Your Finger. And Stewart would say that Sting needed to be able to relate to songs authentically from an uh, authentic emotional place to be able to sing them. And that also limited Andy and, and Stewart's contributions to songwriting because if they were writing these sort of happy, joyous celebration songs and Sting absolutely wasn't feeling it, which he wasn't at this time. I mean, his marriage was breaking down and, and King of Pain was a very real uh, a, a sort of cry for help for where he was at that point in his life. He wouldn't be able to, to tackle those. Like that was, wasn't something that really he was able to do and, and bring himself to. So that, they also felt hemmed in by basically writing songs that were true to how Sting was feeling, which was miles away from how they were feeling. So again, we have this, you know, and 
crazy dichotomy in the police, like where the way that they're making records is just tearing them apart. And yet when you look at the results, it's like you couldn't ask for anything more. Like the album Synchronicity, it comes out in 83, sells 8 million copies in America alone. Every Breath You Take, an enormous hit, an iconic song of the era, ends up winning the Grammy for Song of the Year. And the police become a stadium band. Like if you look at the Synchronicity Tour, they are playing stadiums all over the world. And I always love watching clips of the police from that time. Like Sting is wearing like that Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dream coat. coat. It's like that <laughs> yes. huge coat with all the tassels on it. And it's like <laughs> rainbow colored, uh, which I don't know what the deal is with. I guess it reflected the three colors on the cover of the album, maybe. Like, maybe that was the idea. But it's a, this very grandiose uh, uniform that he's wearing every night. And again, that's another contrast with the early days of the band, which were not that long ago. I mean, we're talking maybe three years earlier. They were this scruffy band that would play very energetic shows. Uh, again, much more about a group spirit, a group energy playing off of each other. And now there's just this like larger than life stadium rock band with this like platinum blonde singer who is clearly up in front of the band. And really, they sort of hit their high water mark when they sell out Shea Stadium which was sort of the benchmark of rock and roll success since the Beatles played there in in 65. I mean, that was kind of the apex of of what they set out to do. And uh, I I guess at that point, that was really when Sting kind of thought, well, this is it. We did it. We climbed the mountain. Really, the best thing we can do at this point is to just do it again. And it really wasn't all that fun to get here. So why would we do that, go through all the hell we've been through just to repeat this success that really isn't all that fulfilling? So I guess the same night that they played this this huge show at Shea Stadium, he turned to Andy and said, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. We should stop. And Andy, to his surprise, agreed. And uh, there's some debate about whether or not Stewart actually agreed to sort of go out on top and say goodbye. Because he would say later on that he was kind of the one that was most likely to want to carry on because his general attitude was, this is great. You know, I can carry on doing this. This is fun. I like doing this. But then eventually I think he saw the logic in going out on top and not, you know, not starting the decline at all. Yeah, I mean, I think for Stewart and Andy, it's a much different proposition, obviously, because I think Sting felt rightly that he didn't really need to be in a band anymore. Like, he was now a huge star. He was well-positioned to go into a solo career where he could do whatever he wanted, where he wouldn't be, you know, having to fight with these two guys anymore. And he could work with different musicians and, 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 and really expand his music. I think really going back to the kind of music that he made before The Police. I mean, Sting would later say that, like, the first rock band he was ever in was The Police, that he was actually more of a jazz pop singer, and that's the direction, of course, that he ended up returning to uh, once he started putting out uh, solo records. It's interesting to me, too, because, like, this Shea Stadium show is, like, I think it's, like, in the middle of that synchronicity tour. Like, they ended up touring, like, into the spring of 1984, so, like, this idea that they weren't going to stay together, like, it was hanging over the band at the moment where they should have just been on top of the world. You know, it's like, we're the biggest band that there is right now. And yet, you know, especially for Stuart and Andy, they knew that, like, the clock was ticking uh, for rock stardom. I mean, I do think that the police deciding to do that is kind of an awesome move. Like, I can't really think of another example of a band or an artist that was that successful, really in the prime of their career, deciding to, like, walk away voluntarily. I mean, usually it's because someone dies or, you know, there's some other sort of outside circumstance that forces bands to quit. But, like, the police, there was no reason for them to quit other than Sting saying that he didn't want to be in the band anymore. Yeah, and there have been a lot of 
theories about sort of his motivation for wanting to kill it, other than it just being, you know, miserable, which is reason enough. I mean, there's some people who say that his marriage had disintegrated over the prior years and it was just such a miserable experience to watch the slow decline of, of his romantic relationship that he didn't want to go through that with the band and he just wanted to to end it before it just became so toxic that they, you know, would never even want to speak again. So, and then there are some who thought it was more ego-driven and I think it was in, I think it was in Stewart's memoir or Andy's memoir where they talk about the song publishing for the band was actually split three different ways. So maybe Sting got tired of, of dividing up his income equally when he was doing the lion's share of the songwriting. Uh, and he figured, you know, he could make it work by keeping all the, the writing royalties and hiring the best jazz musicians in the world to come and play for him, which, you know, seems like a win-win. But as you said, yeah, the, the band would later say that it was best that they split at that moment before kind of embarrassing themselves. It was a case of quit while you're ahead and leave them wanting more. And their artistic reputation was preserved for all eternity. You know, the legend remains intact. It's the Jimi Hendrix thing. And uh, it's really even more compelling to me that they never made a formal announcement that they were technically breaking up. You know, they, they went sort of Beatles style and just quietly stopped, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that was a deliberate uh, thing, too, even though, like, you know, Andy Summers just talked about how they knew that the band was over. You know, it's just that their management thought it would be, you know, ha have a better mystique just, just to leave it mysterious. And it is interesting because, you know, they do have this decision where they're going to, like, walk away at the top of their career. But then... Not long after that, they did come back briefly. And, you know, you talked about how their artistic reputation is intact. It's only because people don't remember that they actually got back together like two years later. You know, <laughs> I feel like that's been totally just like memory hold, you know, it, maybe for the best. But yeah, in 1986, Sting called up Stuart Copeland and Eddie Summers and asked that they would want to play a few shows for uh, – there was this fundraising tour for Amnesty International – which Sting was involved with, of course, and you know, U two was involved with at that time. I think Peter Gabriel was also involved there, so it was a pretty big deal. And you know, the Police still a huge band in the mid '80s, so having them play these shows was going to be great publicity uh, for this very worthy cause. But apparently, like even playing just like three shows was like super <laughs> tense <laughs> for much. these guys, and they're like, "Eh, I don't know if this is really good." But then they there was this idea that okay, maybe touring together doesn't work. Let's try to go back into the studio because the record company, they wanted to put out a greatest hits record. And as is often the case, they felt that if there were some new songs on the greatest hits record, that that would help sell more copies. Uh, so the police have this idea that they're going to record new versions of old police songs. Like No one wants that. No which nobody wants. wants. Nobody wants that. Like songs that aren't even that old. We're talking about Don't Stand So Close to Me and to Do, 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 Da, 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 Da. Songs that were only about five or Three six years, years old yeah. at that time. And, you know, it's a terrible idea to record songs that you've already recorded. But, like, it even got worse because Stuart Copeland was playing polo before <laughs> these recording sessions. And look, you can guess what's going to happen. All right. He's playing polo on a horse. And guess what? He falls off the horse. I think he breaks his shoulder and he can't play drums, which look, if you listen to the show, any musicians out there, you know, if you're a musician, you listen to the show because you want to learn about how to talk to your bandmates. You don't want to repeat the mistakes of history. Please. We talked about this in our Stephen Stills episode. Stephen Stills had a horse incident. <laughs> That's right. Don't, don't ride horses. Or if no. you're going to ride a horse, ride a pony, ride, ride a slow pony. Don't ride the fast horse if you're in a successful band because you will fall off, you will break a limb, 
And in the case of this police reunion, he couldn't play drums on these tracks, so they had to use a drum machine. Which, if you listen to the police, a big part of the sound is Stuart Copeland's drums. So if you remove that element, and it's just Sting and Andy Summers playing on this like dirgy synth pop reimagining of like these old police songs, it's not going to turn out well. And, you know, I think that's why this has been memory hole, because like no one wants to hear the 1986 version of Don't Stand So Close to Me. I mean, it's it's awful. It's even more terrible when you realize that they recorded it in one day and spent about two more weeks of their session time arguing over which drum machine to use. Like that's when, when they all knew like, okay, we are not going to do, you know, when, when Stuart heals, this is, this is over. We're not actually going to ever reunite the studio again because we spent, I, I think it was actually three weeks. That's when Andy Summers later say that they were arguing about which drum machine was better to use. So yeah, this was not a happy experience. And those songs were, you know, as you said, memory hold, not well received by the public or the band for that matter. And Sting would later say, you know, it was too early. We shouldn't have done that. A few years later, in 1992, the band reunites again. This time it's at Sting's wedding, which is incredible. There's actually footage of this. I think it's on YouTube. Uh, After the the hired band for the night had wrapped up, uh, the instruments were just left on stage, and the guests were encouraging Andy and Stewart to to get up there with Sting. And uh, which, again, very telling that Andy and Stewart were invited to Sting's wedding. Like, it really says that outside of the musical realm, they were still friendly enough to, like, attend each other's functions and stuff like that. Um, Sting was not down for having a reunion at his wedding, you know, on his wedding day. Uh, But a couple of drinks later, he threw his hands up and said, you know what, let's do it. He gets up on stage. They perform Message in a Bottle and Roxanne. And it was basically three drunk guys goofing off. But according to Sting, even on his wedding, even though they were trashed, the old animosity intentions appeared instantly. He said, we were back in the same state of mind. Stuart was scowling at me and throwing drumsticks at me. It was it was terrible. Yeah, they have tension there. That when they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, I think that was 2003, they performed there, and apparently there was tension there too. It's like anytime you get these guys together, the old hatreds just instantly spark up. Even if even if it's like presumably like a low pressure situation, like a drunken wedding gig, you know, these guys still have that inherent tension that where they have to strike out against each other. And yet, in spite of this toxicity, there is this ongoing narrative in all of their careers where people keep asking them if the police will ever reunite. And in the case of Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers, it's a little more obvious why people are asking that just because their careers weren't as high profile after the police broke up. Uh, Andy Summers ended up kind of drifting into this like instrumental jazzy world. He also was scoring films. He did the score for Weekend at Bernie's, which is a great achievement. Um, Stuart Copeland also (laughs) was scoring films. He actually uh, did a score for a film I love, uh, the Francis Coppola movie Rumblefish, which was pretty early in his film scoring career. But his score for that is so great, and it's very unusual. It actually reminds me of the scores that John Bryan ended up doing for Paul Thomas Anderson, like on the – Punch Struck Love, like a very rhythmic score that is really about like kind of throwing the the viewer off rather than, you know, soothing them or, you know, telling them how to feel, acting as an emotional cue, like a lot of scores. And then you have Sting, and Sting, of course, hugely successful in the 80s and 90s. And this is the part of the episode where I have to make my confession of like having terrible taste. Because, you know, we had our Van Hagar episode where I talked about how I loved Van Hagar as a kid. And I have to say... 
that like I had a weird love of Sting solo albums like when I was like 10 and 11 years old. Like, you know, my friends were listening to like Guns N' Roses and I would occasionally like sneak off to my room and listen to like Dream of the Blue Turtles, you know? And I love GNR too, but I, I just had this thing like where the midlife crisis boomer music of the Soul Cages spoke to me in 1991 for whatever odd reason. And I still have a lot of love for like the first like three or four Sting solo records. It's uh, so weird you mentioned that because I, around the same age, when I was like 11 or 12, when Brand New Day came out, I secretly loved that album. I loved Desert Rose. In my mind, you know, growing up in like an apple orchard in New England in the middle of nowhere, I, I remember thinking like, oh, this is like, this is what the city sounds like. This is what like cool, <laughs> sophisticated people listen to. Like like in High Fidelity, when John Cusack's character goes to dinner with Catherine Zeta-Jones is like, you know, sophisticated city friends and stuff. Like that was what I imagined was being played at like cocktail parties and stuff in, in the bright lights of of Boston. So I, yeah, no, I, I have a, a soft spot for, for as ridiculous as I think that Sting is for his his various uh, loot enterprises that we'll talk about later. Uh, yeah, I, I love his solo stuff. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Sting is that he's always been a good songwriter, I think. He's yeah. always had a great ear for melody, and I think he's always been a strong singer. The thing that he lost after the police broke up is that I think his bands, even though they had incredible musicians, it didn't have the energy that a real band has. It doesn't have the tension that a real band has. So his records just got blander and blander. You know, there wasn't a real energy to them. There wasn't that spark that someone like a Stuart Copeland could bring because he would rub up against Sting and they would have sparks and friction because of that. And that's why I think for all of Sting's solo success, people kept asking, like, are the police ever going to get back together? And he, for years, he would always shrug it off and sometimes even get annoyed by it. But once we get into the aughts, it seems like he's warming up to it. And we're really, really kind of ramping up to, like, the big police reunion that happened uh, at the end of that decade. Yeah, I feel like the peak of, of Sting's sort of blandness is an, an album he did for the loot called uh, Songs from the Labyrinth, which... Uh, did so well that even Sting was surprised. And he was sort of stumped what to do next because, as he tells it, the most surprising thing he could do after going down this really uncommercial route was to do the most commercial thing imaginable and reform the police, uh, which, you know, took even the band by surprise. But apparently he, he made the call and within a week the contracts were all signed and they were starting to book venues and it came together incredibly fast. I mean, Stuart and Andy were were ready to go. And three months later, they were playing a, a reunion set at the Grammys in uh, in early 2007. And the next day, they did a small set at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which was the same stage where they had their L.A. debut in 1979. And they announced that they had a new tour. And, uh, and yeah, when Sting was asked sort of why he was doing the one thing he always said he would never do, he said, I know things about music that I didn't know then or couldn't express. I'm a better band leader now than I was then which I thought was a very, I guess it would be silly to argue that Sting isn't the band leader, but also an interesting thing to say at the beginning of a long-awaited reunion of a very tension-filled band, I have to say. Yeah, and it goes without saying that like this police reunion tour, it ended up unfolding pretty much as you expect. I mean, behind the scenes, a lot of sniping, a lot of, I think, Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland being alienated by Sting being a taskmaster, you know, being a, a control freak, essentially, which I think those were qualities that manifested themselves towards the end of the, of the police. But then you add, you know, 20 years of being a solo artist 
And I'm sure it just made it worse because like when Sting is in his own bands, there's no question that he's the leader. But like in the police, you know, in his own mind, if he felt like oh, Sting feels like, oh, I'm the leader, I'm sure, you know, Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers weren't necessarily looking at him like that. You know, there's a, a great Rolling Stone story that was written about the tour preparations for the reunion. And uh, like David Frick writes about how he saw Sting and Andy Summers argue about the guitar lick and walking in your footsteps for like a half hour. Like he just like kept telling Sting kept telling Andy Summers notes. to play it. Yeah, it's like over and over again. It's like, no, you're not getting it quite right. Over and over again. And again, this is the guy who played on the original record. So you think <laughs> that he probably has a good idea of how to play it, but still, you know, Sting is a perfectionist and you know, putting Andy Summers through the ringer. And yet this tour ends up being like one of the biggest earning tours of all time. It's a huge success. Again, they're playing stadiums again all over the world. And I'm sure that like for as annoying as Sting was, like for Copeland and Summers, they must have hoped that like they were going to keep this going, either stay on the road or maybe even make a record. But uh, Sting made that clear that that was not going to happen. Like, have you seen that interview that the police did on that Elvis Costello show, Spectacle? Oh, I, I saw it. And then I saw the backstage footage in the Andy Summers video where oh. Sting, oh, it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's horrible. Sting is out with Elvis Costello first and they're talking and Elvis asks him like, you know, how much longer do you want to do this basically? And Sting very, as diplomatically as he can, says that he, he doesn't really want to be in a band anymore. And then they cut to Andy and Stuart backstage waiting to come out and join him on stage watching this on the monitors. And you see them stoically react to the news. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't news to them, but just, just confronting the fact that this was done and it's he brutal. doesn't want to be with. It's awful. And like, again, I understand Sting's perspective because I'm sure from his point of view, he's like, I already have a great career, you know, on my own. I can go tour. I can sing police songs on my own. And I can make a lot of money. Although I, I don't think he could have played stadiums the way that the yeah. police did. The police certainly, I think, I think in the same way that like Simon and Garfunkel in some way is still more famous than Paul Simon, even though Paul Simon's had a great solo career. I still feel like the police are more famous than Sting as a solo artist. Just because of classic rock radio, like you hear police songs all the time in a way that you don't necessarily hear Sting songs on the radio unless you're like at the dentist office or you know, <laughs> a grocery store or something. But yeah, it's just brutal to see that laid out for those guys and, and to see how it ends. And yet, you talked about this in the introduction, for all of the rancor that's existed between these guys, they seem like they're friendly now. Like like the recent stories about them coming together, like they go to each other's shows or you know exhibits or whatever, they still support each other. And it seems like they're friends or maybe they're frenemies. I don't know how to classify it, but they're in each other's lives. And it seems like they do like each other, I think, for the most part. Yeah, it seems like they like each other in every other situation except for playing music. And maybe there is a bit of a frenemy component involved, too. I mean, there's uh, when Sting and, was doing shows with Shaggy, which I still don't really understand too much of. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a, a phrase I didn't think I would say. Um, and they did a show in L.A. Uh, Stuart and Andy got seats right up front. And Stuart would say, yeah, we sat in the audience so that we could make snide comments and watch them from the front so he could see us, like being like the Statler and Waldorf, the guys, old guys from the Muppets, <laughs> like up on the balcony. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of like, you know, teasing, I think, good-natured frenemy teasing. But yeah, overall, I think it's probably one of the best ways that uh, a feud this intense could have been resolved. 
Yeah, it's like if your friends can't laugh at your collaboration with Shaggy. I mean, like, <laughs> do you really have any friends? I mean, that's the sign of true love, I think. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Sting first. I mean, look, Sting, obviously, from Roxanne on, he wrote the biggest songs in this band. You know, he was the figurehead. He was the good-looking guy out front. He was a really good singer. And as we've reiterated in this episode, I think that for all of his abrasiveness, he did have the right instincts in the police. You know, I I am a person who I think I, I tend to prefer the first three records. I like the energy of, 
you know, Zenyatta Mundata and Regatta de Blanc. I like the interplay of the musicians. But you can't fault Sting for taking them in this more, I guess, produced direction when he was coming up with songs, you know, of the caliber of Every Breath You Take and Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. I mean, he was coming up with great pop songs and he had a way that he wanted to realize them. And he was right to say that Stuart Copeland doesn't need to show off on a song like Every Breath You Take. The song itself was strong enough. So even though I think that ultimately destroyed the band, it was good for his art. And looking back on it now, the songs are what matter about the police and it's why people still care about this band. Yeah, I mean, you just think about what would have happened if they just continued down the Stuart route and been kind of almost like a Clash clone, fake punky band. I mean, it's just amazing to think what their reputation would have been if, if, if that had been the way that they went and just more more songs that Stuart would have written. Uh, instead of, you know, Sting's musical depth and, and lyrical substance, uh, he's a killer songwriter and lyricist, not to mention an amazing bassist. I feel like I've got to shout out his bass playing. I mean, he's an incredible instrumentalist who really, I, I think that his jazz leanings really added something new and kind of in a, created this new subgenre to the punk rock format. He just this really distinctive sound of the police that I think is traced to him. And uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, he's obviously one of the best-selling artists of all time. And later on with the solo work, really elevated world music to a mainstream Western audience. And uh, and he plays a mean lute, too, oh, I yeah. should say. I mean, what other lute players can you name? Right. <laughs> There's Sting and, you know, I'm sure that we'll get an email from, like, a lute expert <laughs> yeah. who will list off many lute players. But Sting is the only lute player I could think of. Um, if we go to the pro Stuart Copeland slash Andy Summerside... You know, and I, I said this earlier, and I, but I really believe it that, like, for all of Sting's solo success, I think ultimately people look at the police a little bit more fondly. And I think the police are ultimately a little bit more famous than Sting. You know, Sting can obviously go out and do whatever he wants. He can play big shows. But when he's with the police, he's playing stadiums, you know, and, and that is the difference. And it's not just the fact that he wrote big songs for the police. I think Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers, they gave his songs, a framework that just made them sound more exciting. You know, I think Sting on his own, he could still write good songs, but like they didn't have the energy and the tension and the friction that the best police music has. And I think for that reason, you really have to give those other guys their props. Also, you know, just on a one-to-one level, I think Stuart Copeland is a great drummer. I think he's like one of the great rock drummers of all time. And Andy Summers, to me, is a really unheralded guitar player. It, you know, He's not a guy who's going to show off how fast he can play, although I think he was capable of playing a lot more notes than he actually played in The Police. You know, He's going to serve the song, but at the same time, he's going to do something interesting with his guitar sounds that you're not going to get from any other guitar player. And I have to say that like Andy Summers, to me, you know, for a guy who isn't listed often among like the greatest guitar players ever, I think he really does have a distinctive feel and tone that when you hear it, you identify it with the police. And, you know, if he weren't there, it just wouldn't have been the band that they were. So yeah, I think as a band, they were a band. It wasn't just, it wasn't just a backing group for Sting in his songs. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And for all the frustration with Sting sort of taking the lion's share of the limelight and and the record real estate, I think that the other guys understood that his songs were objectively better than theirs. And the argument seemed more about like, how to make those songs better, musical minutia, rather than, you know, why can't we do more of my songs? Which, in retrospect, I'm sort of surprised wasn't a bigger factor given, you know, how the band started out as Stewart's Enterprise. Like, I feel like they were all very open to giving Sting his space. 
And the fights became more about how to best serve him and be allowed to sort of add input to those. So, yeah, I'm impressed by how good-natured the others were by the sort of abrupt and extreme shift in the power dynamics. And Stuart later say, you know, there's nothing more natural for me in the world than standing next to a brighter source of light. I don't mind. It just better be pretty fucking shiny. So I think that's a very, that's very generous. So when we look at uh, all these guys together, you know, and I touched on this at the beginning of the episode, but just how unusual it was for these three guys to form a band, how they were very different people, and in some cases, you know, different generations. Uh, on paper, it didn't make sense at all. And yet when you brought them together, it created a sound that was incredibly popular. Again, like I think the police, to some degree, they don't get their due as much as they deserve nowadays. But like if you go on any classic rock radio station, you're going to hear several police songs over the course of the day and it just really speaks to the unique chemistry that exists in bands that like people that don't seem like they belong together sometimes you put them in the same space and sparks fly everywhere and it creates something really combustible but also appealing and attractive and to me that's the police story in a nutshell yeah you know it's a tired trope of the show but without the differences that ultimately drove them apart we would have never had the music that made them great and there was an interview Stuart Copeland gave right after the reunion tour wrapped. And he was basically marveling at how different he and Sting are spiritually, musically, in their approach to making songs and just, just miles apart and just fundamentally different people at every level. He said that we might as well come from different planets where different rules of physics apply. But at the end of the day, they can still come together and make songs that make people cry. And that's something to, to be celebrated despite their differences. Well, Jordan, this is always the hardest part of the episode, you know, when we have to leave because I can't stand losing you, <laughs> Jordan. Steven, every little pun you make is magic. <laughs> oh, man. I think it is now our time to get out of here on, <laughs> on that note. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road. 
road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.